0: I think it's another day. I had a two-week regimen of uh, hydroxychloroquine, and I've taken it. I think just about two weeks. I think it's another
1: day. So, and I'm still here. I'm still here, and I
0: tested very positively in a in another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So, no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning. Okay. Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and uh, with me is my trusty co-host, Austin Rupp. Hello, everyone. Back at it. We hope you're all doing well. This is definitely a historic time in America. Seems like the beast has finally awakened. Peaceful protesting, rioting and looting, police responding to protests of police brutality with more police brutality. Just White another House. day in America. Just another. <laughs> White House is gassing peaceful protester at Lafayette Square in order to get a pandering photo shoot of the president holding a Bible upside down in front of a church.
1: You loot, we shoot. Mm.
0: Bow and arrow only, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Salt Lake was in the news because of the bow and arrow guy. Good old Salt Lake,
1: and a and a hunting knife, right? bow and arrow and hunting knife or something
0: yeah it was like really baffling this guy shows up to a protest with a bow and arrow and he's like aiming it at people and the protesters just tackled him and then they flipped his car over and lit it on fire we did not condone he was not arrested he escaped but now they've just recently charged him with three felonies and they've issued a warrant for his arrest so he will probably be arrested soon
1: Honestly, that guy looked so pathetic. Like, he had, like he was old. Yeah, was he could sad. barely pull his bow back. I think he was wearing cargo shorts. Got nothing against cargo shorts, but, like, come <laughs> on, dude. And, uh, yeah, it I mean, I think he looks, got what
0: was coming to him. Like It was kind of sad. I mean, it, the, the whole the, thing The is, crowd really beat him up. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know what I can't what we believe should... we're expressing sympathy for that guy. Anyway,
1: no, well, I said he was pathetic. You said he was <laughs> sad. <laughs> anyway, I don't, we're not even really sure. you know this is obviously a, a super sort of what solemn time, yeah in American history for and, so many reasons. And, yeah, and I think you know, here yeah. last week in medicine, we what do we stand for? I mean <laughs> or, <laughs> well, I think uh, are, we, or are we not racism
0: is bad. Agreed. Police brutality is bad. Agreed. Peaceful protesting is good. Agreed. Mandatory curfews are bad. Yeah, we've decidedly (laughs) come down on the side of we disagree with that. Our mayor issued a, a curfew starting last Saturday that lasted through Monday,
1: and then she did another one. I would say both of us agree with broad systemic and criminal justice and policing tactic change, right? I mean... Yeah, maybe we, I don't know what we're saying about this. I think this whole, yeah, law and order thing is insane. Like a war on drugs and crime is like, we got to move past that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just heavy stuff. It is heavy
0: stuff. We're here to, we're here to talk about remdesivir only. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the unrest has been so overwhelming that I almost forgot we were in the middle of a pandemic in our state. Utah is chomping at the bit to get back to normal but our daily, case regardless rate of the is actually increasing, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. We're like averaging over 300 positives a day now, so that's going really well. Yeah, yeah. Still seeing a decent amount in the hospital. I don't expect that to go away anytime soon. But anyway, let's let's talk about medical stuff. So I think today we can finally talk about some non-COVID papers. But first, let's just hit some of the COVID highlights. So. Uh, the Lancet published a paper on May 22nd that got a lot of uh, press, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide for the treatment of COVID-19, a multinational registry analysis. And it, it got a lot of press, I think, because it, it was uh, it's a big, big uh, data set that showed maybe an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias in the people who got chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, or those drugs plus a macrolide. However, uh, on June 2nd, the, the Lancet actually published an expression of concern because important questions had been raised about data reported in the paper, and so they did their own independent audit of the validity of the data, and today, June 4th, the authors have requested that the paper be retracted. So... That's all you need to know about that paper. <laughs> I did read it, but we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, we had a lot prepared for that, so just mm. just be na- just mm-hmm. know. That... Yes, I learned a lot of useful information. and. We were going to
1: say we think it should be retracted.
0: Yeah, I was definitely going <laughs> to express some concern. Yeah, expression of concern official from last week in medicine. Yeah, well, I don't know about this paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yesterday, JAMA published a paper entitled. Uh, effective convalescent plasma therapy on time to clinical improvement in patients with severe and life-threatening COVID-19. So we talked a little bit about convalescent plasma last time. There was like a small case series that we reviewed. This is actually a randomized trial of 103 patients with severe COVID. Um, Half of them got convalescent plasma, half got standard of care. There was a trend toward improvement with plasma, but it was not statistically significant. Hmm. And that's Probably because they had to terminate the study early because the epidemic was actually contained in China where they were doing the study. So they weren't able to get to their target of 200 patients. So it was un- underpowered to detect a difference. Um, Don't worry. Our pandemic is nowhere near being contained. So we'll yeah, be able we'll to comment plenty, on this further. we we'll plenty of <laughs> patients to enroll. Uh, yeah. Anyway, maybe convalescent plasma works. Makes this, sense. This it paper, makes sense. Oh, gosh. <laughs> This paper does not support using convalescent plasma, but hopefully there'll be a bigger study that can actually show whether it works or not. Uh, And then yesterday, the New England Journal published a paper entitled, A Randomized Trial of Hydroxychloroquine as Post-Exposure Prophylaxis for COVID-19. They enrolled 821 asymptomatic patients with household or occupational exposure to someone with confirmed COVID-19 and randomized them to either hydroxychloroquine or placebo within four days of the exposure. I believe they got five days of the drug. There was no difference in infection rates um, between the groups, and so uh, that paper suggests that it's probably, you know, our president is continuing to take hydroxychloroquine. Um, You know, he is still alive, and so maybe it's helping him. He's still here. He's still here. (laughs) It's another day, but probably uh, not yeah, we, we still should not be using hydroxychloroquine outside of research studies. So, all right. And I think next we should talk about the most exciting COVID paper to come out so far. Yep. And uh, I have to eat my words a little bit because last time I was extremely skeptical about the remdesivir study, but now we actually have the paper to look at. So Austin's gonna talk to us about that. I can't remember what I said about it. I think I I think I poo-pooed it too.
1: So I mean I I guess we're default
0: is to poo poo everything. That's true. We're
1: critical. We're critical of of the literature, man. (laughs) So critical. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, this is uh yeah, this was this article is called Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID nineteen preliminary report. Um it was in the New England Journal, um by Beagle or Beagle, et al., um, and was published on May 22nd. It's also called the ACT-1 trial. Uh, we've talked about remdesivir nauseam previously, but just as a reminder, it's an RNA polymerase inhibitor and was active against MERS, so some people thought it would be active against SARS-CoV-2, and it has been shown to be active in a primate model. So, uh, this trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial aiming to evaluate remdesivir's effectiveness in COVID-19. They randomized 1,063 patients across 60 trial sites in 10 countries. Um, Patients were randomized to remdesivir with a 200-milligram loading dose followed by 100 milligrams daily thereafter uh, for a total of 10 days or to placebo. Uh, Randomization was stratified by study site and disease severity at rollment at enrollment. um, Patients were able to receive other COVID-19 treatments as dictated by written hospital policy or guideline but were prohibited from receiving other experimental or off-label treatments. So I think that's something worth noting. You know, a lot of the Chinese studies that we've looked at uh, in particular have had multiple, multiple therapies, sort of a layered on top of one another here um, that was less prevalent. The primary outcome measure was time to recovery during the 28 days after enrollment as defined by reaching Category 1 through 3 on an 8-point ordinal scale. Wow. We've gone from 6 points to 8 points. (laughs) Exactly. So that means not hospitalized with no limitations of activity, not hospitalized... That's a 1? That's a 1, yeah. A 2 is not hospitalized with limitation of activity, um but not home O2 and then 3 was hospitalized not re- not requiring O2 and no longer requiring ongoing medical care but maybe being admitted for you know sort of public health purposes hmm. So, my, you know, sort of the take was not requiring hospital care, basically, is sort of one through three, and then eight is death, So and then there's sort of a whole gradient in between Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to go over here, but you guys can look at it. So, um, other outcomes included mortality at 14 and 28 days, and they also looked at adverse events. Um, It's worth noting that the primary outcome was changed during the trial from the eight scale improvement at day 15 to improvement at day 28, Mm -hmm. and... The authors state that this change occurred due to external information that COVID-19 may have a more protracted course than previously recognized and that no one knew any of
0: the outcome data at this time So, or at the time that this change occurred. So, so while many people on the internets were playing this up as like, oh, look at these jokers changing their primary outcome during the study, resetting the goalposts, <laughs> it looks like it was actually legit and we should not worry about that. Yeah, it's, it
1: bears mentioning and um, consideration, but I think it was reasonable. I think yeah. we agree there. So um, additionally, the, the results were reviewed during what was supposed to be an interim analysis, but enrollment had been completed and they decided to make the, the results of the trial public. Um, hence, the, that, that's why this is a preliminary report. Um, it's worth noting that patients, once they decided to make the results of the trial public, patients who were in the placebo arm... Their their doctor could figure out that they were in the placebo arm. They could ask, and they could be given remdesivir if their doctor requested it. So, right. um, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of change in protocol in, in a few different ways. Um, but we think these modifications mostly make sense. Mm. So, uh, 548 patients were assigned to remdesivir, 522 to the placebo. Um, only 180 received all doses of remdesivir, and 185 received all doses ten doses of placebo. Um, Three in the remdesivir group didn't have baseline data, and one in the placebo group did not have baseline data, so they were excluded from the analysis. But otherwise, they had a sort of intention to treat analysis. Uh, The mean age of the patients was 58.9 years, 64.3% were male, 53.2% were white, and about 80% um, were enrolled in North America. Uh, 27% had one chronic condition, 57% had two, and of which about 50% were hypertension, 37% obesity, and 30% diabetes. So, um, you know, had some comorbidities. Uh, 89% had severe disease at enrollment, defined as category 4 or above on the ordinal scale, and the median number of days between symptom onset and randomization was 9 days. Clinical and demographic data seemed fairly well matched from, from table 1 in this trial. hmm So, patients in the remdesivir arm had a shorter time to recovery at 15 days with a median time to recovery of 11 um, versus 15 days median time to recovery within the placebo arm. This correlated to a rate ratio of 1.32 with a confidence interval of 1.12 to 1.55 and a p-value of less than 0.001. So, um, 11 days versus 15 days and a better rate ratio for remdesivir. They did subgroup analyses according to baseline severity of disease, and the effect actually looked to mostly diminish as the severity of illness increased, except the largest effect was noticed in patients with an ordinal scale score of 5 at baseline, um, so not quite sure what to what to make of that. Um, additionally, median time to recovery could not be calculated in the group with an ordinal scale score of 7. And that might have been because not enough patients recovered. Mm-hmm. That, they didn't make that totally clear in the paper.
0: Those were like invasively ventilated. Yeah, that's vent, that's like yeah. ventilated
1: or ECMO. You know, very mm-hmm. very sick. So um, they were not able to comment on the effect within those that subgroup of patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beneficial effect of remdesivir was most notable in white patients, North Americans, and younger patients. Uh, They did an interaction test of treatment by baseline score, which was not significant, whatever that means. (laughs) And um, a a key secondary outcome was increased odds of improvement in the ordinal scale with remdesivir with an odds ratio of 1.50. That's just a different way to look at it. And um, I think the primary outcome is still, still the most important here. Notably, mortality was lower in the remdesivir group, but not statistically significant. And serious adverse. It was close. It was close, yes, yes. Trended towards better mortality. (laughs) Serious adverse events occurred in 114 patients in the remdesivir group and 141 patients in the. uh, placebo group, um, and then four of ev- events were judged to be related to remdesivir placebo, so hmm. not a lot of adverse stuff going on with remdesivir, it didn't look like. Mm-hmm. Um, the authors claim that their study, compared to the Chinese randomized control trial on remdesivir, had more patients, more power, and was better. So, um, at least that's what I read. <laughs> they didn't come out and say that, obviously. Um, shorter time to recovery. Yeah.
0: Statistically significant. Um And I think that's more than like Tamiflu does, right? Right. Like Tamiflu is only like a day or two. This was like four days quicker recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I
1: think, um, for me, This was significant and, and, you know, probably some of the strongest evidence we've seen for for actual meaningful clinical, you know, sort of outcomes. I mean, we've talked about ordinal scales in the past and Mm -hmm. how much they mean. But, you know, this is clinically correlated to basically not needing hospitalization faster. Yeah. Um, And in,
0: you know, sort of the setting of a real hospital squeeze, that could be very important. Definitely. So are you going to start... Ordering it for all your patients? Because we can get it outside of trials yeah. through the emergency use that the FDA approved. I haven't done that yet. Yeah, nor have I. Um, maybe we should. Most of my patients have gotten it through a study. Um, I had a patient last week that got it for, I think, five days, and I discharged him. And now he's actually, unfortunately, back. And I'm <laughs> like, should I give him more remdesivir? I don't know. I don't think this paper can really answer that question. But... Uh, yeah, I do think for most patients, it's worth giving it to them. Yeah, I think. And if if you can, if you can get it. So did you go buy stock in Gilead? (laughs) I I refuse. All right. Uh, and then the New England Journal also published a paper, uh, May 27th, remdesivir for five or 10 days in patients with severe COVID-19. This was a randomized open label phase three trial, um, It did not have a placebo control group it was just five days versus 10 days uh, and they were able to enroll 397 patients uh, and it did not appear that there was a difference between five and ten days Um, so do with that what you will i guess you know in a situation where maybe there's not a lot of remdesivir to go around we should be probably just doing five days of therapy for patients um since it didn't seem like 10 days added benefit. But it would have been nice if there had been a placebo arm in that trial. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to probably be seeing a lot more papers sort of like that, you know, trying to refine its use and how long and and when. And And our institution has been participating in in a trial of 5 versus 10 days. I don't know if it was this one or not. You didn't see I was an author? I didn't see any names that I recognized, (laughs) but I'm sure... That there's a million people involved in that study, so cool. Well, how about we talk about something completely unrelated to COVID nineteen? Medicine has gone on. There's 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 stuff to medicine
1: more than COVID. It's exciting, crazy. Yeah. So there was people still getting UTIs
0: and absolutely raging. So the paper I want to talk about was published in JAMA on June second. Uh, it is called The Effect of C-Reactive Protein-Guided Antibiotic Treatment Duration, 7-Day Treatment of four, or 14-Day Treatment on 30-Day Clinical Failure Rate in Patients with Uncomplicated Gram-Negative Bacteremia. Really nice title, just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> is this? So, this is, what's the acronym here? Yeah, the, uh, they didn't have a cool yeah. acronym trial because they're infectious disease doctors. Right. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, they're more practical.
1: Right, right. Yeah,
0: so... Uh, The background on this, so, you know, we all know that prolonged antibiotic exposure drives up resistance, increases risk of adverse effects like uh, C. diff infections, also leads to higher costs, longer hospitalizations. And so, um, you know, the old way of treating bacteremia, most people anyway, do 10 to 14 days because that's kind of been the consensus, expert opinion, wasn't really based on great evidence. There was a recent randomized controlled trial that found seven days was not inferior to 14 days. Um, But despite that, most people are still kind of doing the 10 to 14 days. Um, But also for 14 days, right? Erda. (laughs) Most it, it would be nice if you didn't just have to go with like a row like seven days. 14 days. Like what if I there was a room. way to tailor it to your patient so they got exactly how much they needed and not a day less or a day more. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be fantastic. I mean, at a large population scale it's it's probably better to just have like 7 days, you know, but just so people can't mess it up. It'd be nice if you could tailor it. And so these guys are proposing that you could use a CRP values to guide your antibiotic therapy. So just a reminder, CRP is an acute phase protein released by hepatocytes uh, to co-activate the complement system in response to antigenic stimuli. Very sensitive marker of inflammation. That's step one right there. Yeah, you really don't need to know that. (laughs) But um, anyway, so their question is, does CRP-guided treatment duration, is that non-inferior to to 7-day or 14-day antibiotic treatment? This was funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. Thank you, Switzerland. For funding trials, um, the study design. So they had it was randomized. There were three different arms. Um, uh, let's see. There were uh, it was took place in Switzerland in three tertiary care hospitals from April two thousand seventeen to August two thousand nineteen. Uh, and as I mentioned before, so the intervention was CRP guided treatment duration. And basically, they were checking serial CRPs, and when it had decreased seventy five percent from its peak, then you could stop antibiotics. Or seven days, or fourteen days. Okay, so okay. patients were randomized on day five of antibiotics. So they'd already been on antibiotics for five days. Probably enough, right there. <laughs> well, I know some people that would maybe say that. Uh, One dose of ceftriaxone. You're <laughs> good, man. Uh, and so at day five, they would say, "Okay, are you? Do you have?" at least one positive blood culture, and are you on efficacious antibiotic therapy? And then they would randomize them to one of the three groups. They excluded patients who'd had a fever in the last 24 hours at the five-day mark, or if they were hemodynamically unstable, or if they were severely immunosuppressed, or grew a strange bacteria that was like a non-fermenting bacilli, or polymicrobial, or gram-positive, or if it was recurrent bacteremia, so they'd had it in the last 60 days, or if they had like an abscess or endocarditis. So they're basically UTIs. (laughs) Well, I mean, they they were only admitting or they were only enrolling uncomplicated gram-negative rod bacteremia. Yes, most of them were UTIs, but that wasn't like a requirement. So the primary outcome was 30-day clinical failure, which they defined as recurrent bacteremia, a local suppurative infection, distant complication, restarting of antibiotics for clinical worsening, or death due to any cause. And the secondary outcomes there were a lot. Uh, but the main ones were clinical failure at 60 and 90 days and all-cause mortality at 30, 60, 90 days, as well as adverse events. Uh, So their goal was a non-inferiority margin of 10%. So the primary analysis used a one-sided 97.5% confidence interval for non-inferiority, which would be demonstrated if the lower bound of confidence interval of the treatment duration effect did not exceed 10%. Um, So... They only lost 11 patients to follow up at the 30-day mark. Uh, Table 1 showed that the baseline characteristics among the groups were similar. The median age was 79. Uh, 61% were women. The vast majority had at least some renal insufficiency. 69% had a urinary source of their bacteremia, uh, so definitely the majority. And then the remaining were, like, presumed abdominal or pulmonary. Uh, Table 2 shows you the bacteria that were isolated. Uh, 75% of patients had E. coli. Uh, 5 to 8% of that was ESBL producing E. coli. 17% had Klebsiella. 4% had Proteus. And then there was a little smattering of other bacteria. So ESBL was allowed to be included. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That, Interesting. Yeah. You could say that's complicated maybe, but yeah, they, they included those. So sure. Uh, the median therapy duration in the CRP treatment group ended up being seven days, so it ranged from six to ten days, uh, but it was noteworthy that patients who had moderate to severe renal insufficiency had a median of eight days, and the CRP is excreted by the kidneys, mm. so you could say that someone with kidney issues might have a, their CRP would take a little longer to come down, so they might end up on antibiotics a little longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then, uh, interestingly, about 7% of patients in the CRP arm did not get their levels checked per protocol, Uh, so that did lead to a higher number of treatment-related per-protocol violations in the CRP group. Mm. Um, But as far as primary outcome results, uh, there was non-inferiority observed for both the CRP-guided and 7-day treatment compared to 14 days. Uh, Clinical failure occurred in 2.4% of CRP patients, 6.6% of 7-day and 5.5% of 14 days. And the primary reason for clinical failure was driven mostly by all-cause mortality. Hmm. Um, Only three patients had recurrent bacteremia, only two with local suppurative complications, and there was no hematogenous seeding of distant foci identified. So, which is kind of surprising to me, like, that's, you know, quite a few patients treated, and very few of them had recurrent bacteremia. Uh, the secondary outcome results. Uh, they looked at 90-day mortality. Was 8% in the CRP group, 9% in the seven-day, and 6% in the 14 days. So those are pretty high mortality rates, um, which I guess we see so much bacteremia in the hospital. I don't really think of it as being like that scary of a thing, but like you don't people think people have a pretty high risk of death. Actually, <laughs> 8% of the patients that you have with gram-negative bacteremia
1: being gone in 90 it, days i mean that's really surprising yeah how no those numbers really, are yeah, but yeah. but i think but you, that's actually, negative bacteremia from a urinary source suggests you're sick like you're, yeah. you yeah should, you shouldn't get that well and these are old patients, yeah exactly
0: um you know comorbidities and and actually they looked at you know if you had a foreign body material in or like a like a joint replacement or, or something like that or if you had pulmonary source of your bacteremia Those were the patients with higher risk for clinical failure and death. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, of the 44 patients who had CRP-guided group who had bacteremia of a pulmonary origin or had foreign body material, um, none of them had clinical failure at day 30, Hmm. compared to 18% in the 7-day and 16% of patients in the 14-day. So you could think like, okay, this patient has a knee replacement, they're bacteremic, Should I do seven days or should I do 14 days? Or could I just check CRP until it comes down? And then that'll give me the confidence that maybe I actually have source control. I don't know. In this case, 44 patients in that group didn't have any treatment failure. This might be a dumb question, but I always sort of thought complicated bacteremia included presence of
1: hardware. Can you say it's uncomplicated if you have hardware? I thought that...
0: I I guess by their definition, at least, they were saying uncomplicated meant that you weren't immunosuppressed, hemodynamically unstable, right, right. or like abscesses or endocarditis. I, mean, I think there's a lot of criteria you could add to say this is more complicated, but... Maybe we don't need to... It yeah. seems that we don't really need to be too concerned about that. Maybe my question is no, I mean, stupid and my concern is unfounded. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I have I don't think that's much, a stupid question. I think that the definition for complicated UTIs and complicated bacteremia... Is variable. Okay, just depends on who you ask. Got it. By their criteria, that wouldn't be considered complicated. But yeah, Uh, overall adverse events were pretty infrequent. So, yeah, I think uh, you know authors concluded that you know in adults with uncomplicated gram negative bacteremia, thirty day rates of clinical failure were non inferior in the CRP guided group and the seven day group compared to fourteen days. So you don't have to treat all these patients for fourteen days. You can do seven if you want to do that. You can do CRP-guided if you want to do that. Um, I think logistically, the CRP-guided arm would be maybe tricky to do because a lot of these patients don't stay in the hospital that right, long. Right. You know, They might be here like two, three, four days, and your CRP might not have come down. That fast, and so you kind of have to like decide how long am I going to treat this person before I discharge them. Yeah, I'm not going to like turf it to their primary care doctor and be like, Hey, could you check a CRP in like a couple days? And if it's come down by 75%, then you can stop antibiotics. Like, that's too complicated for sure. But maybe for a patient that's like stuck in the hospital and you're actually they're here long enough to see that come down, it might be an interesting way to approach it. Yeah, I think.
1: A nice, a nice paper. Something nice to look at. Something that's very clinically relevant. I think it's worth mentioning that seventy some percent were from a urinary source, and seventy some percent were E. coli. So I don't know if you could really extrapolate it to a wide variety of of gram negative bacteremia from different sources with, mm, with different sure, organisms. Sure. But um, more ammunition in the in the you know belt of less antibiotics
0: yeah, is probably shorter okay. is better. Shorter is
1: better. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. So. Yeah.
0: I kind of wonder, and I I need to look at this to see, like, what other infections they've tried this on. I think it's been done in pneumonia and COPD exacerbations, but, like, you know, I think sometimes cellulitis and other skin Mm -hmm. and soft tissue infections can be really tricky to decide how long to treat, because, like, some people are like, five days, that's all you need, five days. I've seen so many five-day treatment failures, right? So, like, I... Don't, I we don't, say they're treatment failures because we bring them in the hospital and give them IV <laughs> antibiotics, but what, <laughs> well, what's the natural history? If they're history? still fevering and <laughs> uh, they look like okay. crap, enough, and like, I'm like, Fair that enough. did not work. <laughs> you know, and so I don't know. I think it would be, in, like, I think a CRP-guided approach to skin and soft tissue would be interesting to look at. It's probably been done, but if right. not, someone should do it.
1: All right. Well, um we're... How are we doing on time? How are we doing on time? We yeah. are
0: at the 30-minute uh, mark. All right. Well,
1: let's just, should I mention, let's talk about syncope for a minute. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I wanted a non-COVID paper, too. So, so I looked at uh, this paper. Does N-terminal Pro-B type natriuretic peptide improve the risk stratification of emergency department patients with syncope? Another nice flowing yeah. uh, title. This is This is written by Dr i stopped trying i'm sorry it, it it's by him but it was a college. nice effort
0: yeah it's man that is it's quite crazy, crazy. That's awesome that's like how many letters <laughs> anyway um they're from ottawa
1: <laughs> Go Canada! And uh, this this paper was published. Our neighbor to the north, who is not undergoing civil unrest. O to B, Canada! Um, this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, May nineteenth, twenty twenty. We will not talk about this in depthly. Um, we just depthly probably not a word bigly. You just made an bigly effort up. <laughs> it felt right. We will not talk about this with great depth. Okay. In great depth. Okay. About
0: anything with great depth. (laughs) Fair enough. So,
1: um, syncope. Approximately one in ten ED patients with syncope will have serious underlying conditions identified within thirty days of presentation. Half are not identified in the emergency department. So those those adverse events are identified in the hospital or after discharge. And hospitalization hospitalization rates vary. Very widely, widely vary mm-hmm. <laughs> from uh, twelve to eighty six percent, so that is a wide range. we come across syncope with uh, quite a bit of frequency yeah. and um, and we the so reason often
0: that i don 't even think about it yeah, anymore.
1: the reason that we thought this might be good <laughs> to discuss was just this is a great question. how can you stratify the risk of patients with syncope? These guys wondered if checking a pro an N-terminal Pro-B-type natriuretic peptide or, you know, NT-ProBNP would be beneficial in that risk stratification uh, schema. So they have this Canadian Syncope Risk Score, or CSRS, which includes nine predictors.
0: Oh, yeah, use that all the time.
1: Yeah, never heard of that. So good to know that there is a risk stratification tool to the north. Um, it includes nine predictors. We won't go through them all here, but their question was not actually does nt Pro B N P help you independently risk stratify syncope. It was actually, should we add pro, pro NT BNP or NT proBNP, which I'm going to call BNP moving forward to our risk <laughs> oh, no, score. You can't call it that.
0: That will confuse
1: people. <laughs> they are different. BNP and NT proBNP are different, but I'm just going to say BNP moving forward. Blasphemous. Sorry. Um, so, you know, again, I don't think we have to go into this with a lot of detail, but they enrolled 1,516 patients. Um, Overall, 152 or 10.5% had a serious adverse event within 30 days, 95 of which were identified in the ED, 57 after the ED, 14 died, they had seven deaths of unknown cause, and 109 of these serious adverse events were cardiac. BNP values or NT pro BNP values were significantly higher among study participants with SAEs or serious adverse events. So keep that in mind. NT Pro BNP equals higher risk for adverse event. Um, The crude odds ratio for elevated BNP was 5.97, and when adjusted for CSRS, predictors fell to 2.85%. They go over how adding it impacts the score and sort of a lot of statistical stuff. Eventually, they they tell us that... um, 145 or 10% of patients would have been correctly reclassified regarding the serious adverse event while 127 or 8.7% would have been incorrectly reclassified by adding BNP to the risk score. So So it's kind of a wash. Yeah. The incremental information contributed by BNP was very small regardless of how you categorize the adverse event or, or classify the adverse event. So my takeaways here were one, NT pro BNP is higher If it's higher, it is equated or associated with a higher risk of an adverse event if you present to the emergency department with syncope, but that adding it to this risk score was not beneficial. Yeah. So, you know, I think here, practically... We still, you know, have to use our own risk stratification score. Maybe this Canadian syncope risk stratification score is beneficial. Maybe NT Pro B N P is beneficial. I don't have an organized sort of schema that I go through myself, but it's, you know, history, physical, labs, EKG. imaging, EKG, um, yeah. and maybe... Mostly history. Mostly history, and they, they do talk about that. Yeah. Um you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of other studies out there about this. The ROSE trial found BNP greater than 300 as an independent risk factor for short-term serious adverse events. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we could look into this a lot further, but it was kind of just bringing, it just brought me back to syncope. You know, they don't tell us that to use this in their score. They're not going to incorporate this in their score, but, um, you know, sort of worth thinking about how to risk stratify folks with syncope.
0: Yeah. I'm
1: all about more labs. (laughs) Yeah, just freak yourself out. You might as well get an NT
0: proBNP on anyone who comes in with syncope and try to try to. Well, we (laughs) did look at another paper, NT proBNP to risk stratify people before surgery. Yeah, and it it was. I mean, it was useful in that scenario. So I don't know. It's interesting here. We do not use we don't use NT proBNP very much. We're mostly a BNP group. Yeah, just plain old. We should strike out and switch to NP proBNP. I Which think, everyone's more
1: expensive. That's the one you should do. I think there's probably more data to come and uh, look for sort of more tools that may or may not incorporate pro-BNP. NT
0: pro-BNP. All right. Well, I think we're done. Uh, please, everyone, stay safe. Do not flip cars over and light them on fire. And do not aim bows and arrows at people. But do educate and
1: advocate
0: for racial
1: and social justice. Yeah.
0: Definitely. I can endorse that. Okay, good. All right. Peace out. Bye.